Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Welcome back. You're listening to Keep It. I'm the only host of the show, as far as I'm concerned, Louis Fertel, but I do have someone here with me. Say your name. <laughs> I'm Ira Madison III. You really leaned into your serious XM voice. Yes. Well, I'm trying to blend in. Sometimes I forget that that's my coworkers. I just asked <laughs> the people on this feed, I'm like, can I go to like serious headquarters and hang out with like Nina Blackwood and the 80s MTV VJs and stuff? No one will tell me anything. They said no. no. <laughs> They're like, you stay in your 2000s TRL block, queen. They said, they said doesn't Serena Altschul still have a restraining <laughs> order against you? Oh, God. God, that fills me with endorphins to hear that name. Oh, all those people. <laughs> you say Gideon Yego, I'm yelping. <laughs> so I was thinking about you yesterday because I know that you typically love dystopian dramas like The Last of Us, which... Oh, yeah. I'm always watching those things. Yes. Uh-huh. Everyone is talking about, which we've been harassed and harangued to discuss. But the key thing that happened in this past episode uh, of a series I'm enjoying, by the way. I really like it. There was the Linda Ronstadt song, which was a focal point. And we're not going to, like, spoil things. But also... It's a dystopian drama, and the episode was just about the lives of these two gay men who were in a relationship throughout the 20 years that the infection took over from 2003 to our current time, 2023. And let me say first, this infection apparently hit, like, um, September 26, 2003, and what a time. I would say, first of all, I came out November 2003, so that is a very potent time for me. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly right there. Like, I can hear <laughs> Crazy in Love playing, you know? Yeah, Crazy in Love is there, and um, the, the movies that came out that weekend were Duplex. That's what you led with? Wow, Duplex. A movie I have absolutely <laughs> not thought of. Is that Drew Barrymore? That's Drew Barrymore and um, Ben Stiller. Right. It, which it, that feels like a pairing I would have said to you, they should do a movie sometime. Then we forget, oh, yeah, they did Duplex, a movie that we dared to call Duplex. I mean, shout out to Drew Barrymore for really sort of um, revitalizing her career several times over. No, and by the way, I, I just want to say every time I watch a clip of her, like I saw that clip of her as Megan scurrying around Allison Williams, Drew Barrymore <laughs> is on this planet to prove she is the most demented first grade teacher of all time. And <laughs> she's getting away from the lesson plan and she's getting into the medicine cabinet. I think that um, Bolu Babalola, yes. our former guest host, she described it as benevolent Tyra. <laughs> wow, yes. Oh, my God. I love that description. That's so true. Right? Like, there's nothing malicious about it. Like, she's she's not going to harass uh, 
Beyonce with um, inane questions. I don't think even Drew would go that far. That's very good, very good. It's also she's more closely related to like a Kelly Clarkson or something in that like I'm goofball energy, but. Kelly Clarkson, I feel like, is smoking in the teacher's lounge, whereas Drew Barrymore is doing glue stick projects in the teacher's lounge. You know, she's really committed to being a first grade teacher. She's very. Um, she's Janine Teagues. In Billy Madison, she's Miss Lippy. That's her. Yeah. Billy Madison. Okay. I was thinking of. I was thinking of Jack. Oh, God. What? <laughs> Why were you doing that? Jennifer Lopez. Francis for Coppola. I'm sorry you were invoked. I love if someone discovered um, that he directed that movie online the other week, and they were startled. Again, when you look at Francis Ford Coppola's 70s works, and then he moves into the 80s. Now, the Cotton Club we love, but it really starts <laughs> to fucking fall apart then. <laughs> One for the, from the heart or whatever with Terry Gar. Anyway, moving on. She had debts. I get She sure did. <laughs> and she's about to get more with this megalopolis shit. Um, so the last of us, Yes. this episode, and actually what I kind of really loved about this episode is it introduced a different element to the series, right? It's, um, the idea that you are going to be getting other stories of what happened during that 20 year gap. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's very lost sort of in that respect. It's just sort of like any episode can be about anything and you're also still going to be following the main story. Right. And this story was about Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett in a relationship for 20 years. One of the fuzziest gay couples ever to be on television. I mean, it was <laughs> fuzzy wuzzy. Fuzzy wuzzy was here. Yes. It was, honestly, I felt like it was justice for looking's cancellation. It sure was. It sure was. It was very sweet. In a way, I almost felt... um too prepared for it. Like, people had told me online there was, like, a gay storyline. And based on the... Um, intense reaction. I knew it would be like sensitive and loving and stuff. That said, once I finally watched it, and by the way, this is not a show that's for you. I'm attracted <laughs> to, yeah, no, like, like nothing about zombification or dystopians, anything. Like, my favorite dystopian movie is Testament with Jane Alexander, which is uh, from the 80s. I've talked about it a thousand times. Go watch it. But that is very rare for me to watch. But in this episode, yeah, it's it it was sweet. Do you know what it reminded me of? Have you seen the movie Bill Nye is nominated for at the Oscars? Living? I have not, but I will need to. It's one of these movies where he finds out he's dying. This is not a spoiler, and it's about like finding like the dignity in the end of life or whatever. And that is sort of the sentiment here, and I appreciate that. I just personally, for me, disagree. If I'm near the end of my life and things are going awry. I mean, to borrow a term that Beyonce did bring back to the mainstream, I'd be going a shift. I'd be doing crazier things. It wouldn't be about dying well. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I found the episode overall very sweet. You know, it was someone described it as gay men's Sandra DePero. Right, right. Yes, yes, yes. Which what, what was an awesome episode. I think I like Sandra DePero a little better, yeah, actually. But. I mean, I do love this trend of we only get lovely, sweet, moving gay stars as one-offs in sci-fi series <laughs> or even um it reminds me of on the versace show there was the episode with um this is not the same bane but it, it's like the the, the judith light episode mm -hmm. you know that like you get these kind of pull-out stories that fit into this larger grislier context and make them sweeter somehow which is sort of maybe it's a backdoor way of telling these stories since the regular ones 
get canceled. <laughs> right. Yes, you're right. It's subversive. And um, yeah. well, and also it's all the more sweeter because you aren't expecting them at all. Nothing about this episode was foretold in the, the one before it or the one before that. Right. And there were some reviews where people thought, you know, it was a bit manipulative. And I'm like, yeah, that's for one thing, like drama is manipulative anyway. And it, it was a bit saccharine, but I will say that I enjoyed it nonetheless. You know? Yeah, no, saccharin's good every once in a while. Uh, my friend who is obsessed with video games, uh, J.M. Sadsina, told me it differs from the video game a lot, where I guess one of the characters is such a dick that the other one kills himself. So they mm. found a completely new track for these people, <laughs> like a, a new sensitive, interesting, not harrowing track for them. But uh, regarding Linda Ronstadt, yeah, so there's an, a song of hers featured in the episode, uh, Long, Long Time, which great song to pick out. Immediately when you hear that, her voice is so amazing. The uh, melody is so memorable. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this will lead to a full Linda Renaissance a la Kate Bush. That said, if you dig in even slightly, if you just get the greatest hits of Linda Ronstadt, banger after banger. I, the one thing I always thought she was kind of lacking in her career was like, enough signature songs like she did great versions of standards and like eventually she went into all sorts of different other types of music that she mastered but in terms of like songs that are just for linda ronstead it always felt like she had like 10 less than she should but if you get that greatest hits package you will be super satisfied um i think people miss music sounding that pure personally they do i mean i went back last night to one of my favorites of hers which was her cover of you're no good. Um, D.D. Warwick's original. Oh, signature. Yes. Yeah. It's a great voice. Sad that she doesn't have it anymore. It's incredibly sad. I mean, like just an, an astonishing career. Though. Somebody who was like, God, I'm so bored. What if I picked a completely different genre that no one would ever expect me to do? And then she would go and master that, too. I mean, she's like one of these wizard people. Uh, but it brings to mind, you know, mentioning Sandra DePero. You know, I think that all these episodes, too. And what a good TV show or like moment does like this, right? Is it takes a song, sort of a nostalgic song, but not one that we've, it helps if it's not one that's overplayed. Totally, yes. Mm -hmm. And it sort of like hooks you. I mean, I'm actually shocked that San Junipero's um, Total Eclipse of the Heart was so meaningful because I feel like you hear that song all the time. I mean, Bonnie Tyler trends every time there's an eclipse. She points it out herself. <laughs> she's like, why am I? She's like, oh, I'm just waking up. What's going on? Everyone's talking about me. Oh, it must be the fucking supermoon or whatever. I know nothing about astronomy. By the way, I was at Flaming Saddles in New York this past weekend. RIP the LA one. Yes. The BPM on <laughs> Holding Out for a Hero. Oh, yeah. Goes off. Coke 80s is a distinct playlist. Yes. It's truly faster than anything that was on the radio. <laughs> Gloria by uh, Laura Branigan is the definitive Coke 80s lady pop song, but Holding Out for a Hero, I mean, you can work out to that. So that, running up that hill, obviously, from Stranger Things. But also, I was sort of rehooked back on that song. When it appeared in the first season of Pose, too, when it was uh oh oh, I love how they used it on yeah. that show. It became the signature song that when India Moore appeared for Evan mm -hmm. Peters, yeah, yeah. What song would you pick in like a devastating queer love story? I've got mine. Ooh, that should come back. Let's see. Well, you know somebody I think that still could use a real renaissance is Tracy Chapman, because mm -hmm. I think when you hear her immediately, you you have to stop and you have yeah. to listen. She did other things besides hang out in that car. <laughs> I mean, you obviously had Give Me One Reason, but <laughs> when she performed Talking About a Revolution on Seth Meyers, I think it was right by the Biden election. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I, I would love to hear that. I mean, she has lots of great songs, telling stories. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the Tori Amos songs online. Please. Oh, God. I mean, where do you even begin? I mean, Tori Amos is one of these people where, here, okay, among all her feats, one of my favorite things about Tori Amos, you remember when VH1 used to have the show Storytellers? Yes. Okay, so you'd go on and you'd perform your hits in this sort of environment where you're sitting on like a, a quote-unquote ethnic Pier 1 carpet <laughs> and people are, are gathered around you and you answer what your songs are about. Tori Amos, I mean, this is, I'm paraphrasing, but someone would be like, oh God, what is, you know, Cornflake Girl about? She'd be like, a little old woman was sitting on a bench chomping on an apple. And you're just like, no, she wasn't. Like, she just went so, like, fucking bonkers. Like, she, she's she's so one of a kind. That's like, did I ever tell you about how I went to the Grammy Museum and saw Ava Max perform, and she described how the song Kings and Queens came about. And she's like, because she's on a date with this guy who's this, like, L.A. douchebag guy who's, like, taking her to this restaurant, like, trying to show how much money he has. Like, whatever you want on the menu, I'll get it for you. Anything you want. And she's like, oh, I'm not really that hungry. Like, just a salad, some fries or something. She's like, anything you want. Anything you want. And then she was like, and then I realized, I'm no damsel in distress. Don't need to save me. I'm like, you did not get that song from that bitch. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that does seem a bit far-fetched. There are only a couple stories in, like, pop history where... I really believe the origin story because that person clearly wrote the entire song. Like mm-hmm. th- that story of like Michael Jackson being in the car and it's on fire because mm-hmm. he's thinking about the baseline of Billie Jean and he gets home and realizes like yeah. he's in danger basically. But like, right. That's somebody who would have written that part of the song and then immediately shared it with Quincy Jones, not to say Ava Max doesn't write any of her lyrics, but it's like the sentiment isn't so original that you had to come up with it arguing for a salad. Do I believe that Beyonce wrote the yes, lyrics exactly. to Pretty Licious on a plane exactly on a napkin? Exactly what I'm talking about. I do. <laughs> you, do. <laughs> <laughs> you need to. It's like Santa Claus. Because I, I, I believe, I don't know if she got the bass line later and found the sample later. I feel like she probably found the sample later, but I definitely believe that she's like my body's so bootylicious for you, babe. I'm like, that is something you would scribble <laughs> on a napkin, you know? I want to know, like, was she listening to, like, a disc man of Stevie Nicks? Or was it, like, hit clips? I mean, the year's, like, 2001. You know what I mean? Um, You know who I would pick for mine? I would pick, like, Breathe Again by Tony Braxton. Oh, sure. Tony Braxton. I mean, not, I mean, like, again, when um He Wasn't Man Enough comes on, that's... People underestimate. We're in the middle of this uh, Miley, Miley Cyrus Flowers moment. Mm-hmm. When you get like a mid-tempo thing that hits just right, like that's sexuality in a pop song. I mean, I think people, that that's forever. case of our specific generation, this song will always be famous at a pregame and afters when you, when you have YouTube on. You will always see he wasn't mad enough. Oh, at least at mine. Yeah. Yeah, but I think she's due for a reddit because we sort of had a Tamar. Tamar got her moment. Yes, and Grammy nominations. Yes, underrated Grammy nominated sister duo there. Yeah, she got she like got her big moment after being you know like sort of in Tony's shadow for a bit. But I think that now we're sort of really redue for like a Tony Renaissance. And also, Aaliyah's uncle still has Libra under lock. <laughs> Does she really? Does yeah, she that really? album that album was on Black Ground Records. Right, right, right. It's locked up. Wow. I mean, like in this age where we're getting this weirdo Amy Winehouse biopic, I mean, like the Aaliyah one's got to be coming. Yeah. 
I mean, and not a lifetime one, right? No. Oh, please. I mean, I watch those too, but I mean, we need something significant here. I mean, not to delve too much into, you know, the like creepy, like R. Kelly of it all, right? But like, wouldn't Aaliyah, like during the R. Kelly marriage, like fit just like right into his um, sort of oeuvre? Yes, claustrophobic, <laughs> um, lost in a big house thing he loves to do. Yes. Yeah, you just like hauntingly hear like AJ, nothing but a number playing on stereos in separate rooms. And every time she goes into a room, though, it's, it's not playing. Right. Haunting. And she clings to the Romeo Must Die script. This will get me out of here. Aaliyah, not much of an actress. That's like my take on that. Sorry about that. Great otherwise. Speaking ill of the dead. Talk about a queen of the damned. Anyway. (laughs) All right. So uh, we have a very fun episode this week. We are, Lewis and I are going to go head to head (laughs) over the Andrea Riseborough scandal that has erupted after the Oscar nomination. I mean, it's the only real Oscar scandal to occur. Well, I guess Will Smith did slap somebody last year, but the like since like the La La Land Moonlight thing, where there's like some debate to be had about it, I'm thrilled. I love it. I mean, this is what cinema needs. Yeah, and also that it's Andrea in the middle of it, where people are like, "Who?" and she's like <laughs> propelled to the fore. Former Keep It guest Andrea Riseborough. <laughs> And then we will get into a slew of new music releases. Ava Max's Diamonds and Dance Floors. We're going to finally decide Great. what her fans are called. You will hear it here. And then I feel like there's always uproar over Sam Smith. But currently there's uproar over Sam Smith and their new music video, Not Here to Make Friends. And also their album Gloria is out. So we're going to dig into that whole thing as well um and a lot more plus one of my dear friends zosha rockmore joins us on keep it this week born star zosha rockmore i met her once at akbar like eight years ago and um you have to like clutch your chest be like oh my god here, here it is hollywood born star and born name for a star yes ask me a goth x is the letter <laughs> Uh, she stole her movie. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back with more Keep It. Get ready for the ride of your life with the X-Ray Vision podcast. Join Jason and Rosie as they explore the world of gaming and comics. Take a deep dive into the new HBO series, The Last of Us. Plus, you can watch the full episodes of the podcast right on the X-Ray Vision YouTube channel. So grab your cape and tune in every Wednesday and Friday for new episodes of X-Ray Vision wherever you get your podcasts. So after what is essentially the wildest Oscars campaign since um, Consider... Right, which was a a pretty significant one, if you remember. (laughs) The Academy is investigating whether Andrew Riseborough's campaign was fair play. Though, to be honest, if Gwyneth Paltrow is involved, I'm already a bit suspicious. Rick Caruso is also nominated for Best Actress. Isn't that too bad? (laughs) Uh, Lewis, explain this controversy for our listeners. Sure. So, Andrea Riseborough, who was on this show promoting the movie To Leslie, which when I went to see it, I didn't know what it was about. And then I saw it and I was clutching my face like the painting, the scream. Could not believe what I was seeing. She's that amazing. She routinely is. If you've seen, uh, I think she's the only amazing part of Death of Stalin. She gave us an A plus performance in the movie 
W.E., which, as you know, Madonna directed and then inflicted on the public. I mean, listen, I know Angelina Jolie is Evelyn Salt, but I, you will never recognize Andrea Riseborough in any movie she's in. No, never. She's in Battle of the Sexes. She's in Birdman. I mean, she, she's like kind of um, uh, serpentined her way through cinema. You see... Marin Ireland in a film and think it's her. Right. She's one of those people where she could be somebody else, too. So there's that confusion involved. But anyway, she managed to get an Oscars nomination. And basically, this nomination came about because, first of all, the wife of the person who directed To Leslie is the actress Mary McCormick. And she was the beginning of this campaign where she emailed people being like, this performance is really good. You know, she happens to be a very connected person, knows a lot of famous people. So that picked up quickly. A bunch of very similarly worded tweets, and I mean the exact same tweet, were shared by people like Mia Farrow, several other actors. Francis Fisher. Francis Fisher, yes. She was the most vocal, by the way, because Francis Fisher was like responding to people on Twitter, too. Uh, just like she was, she was in the trenches for Andrea. Right. And also, this network picked it up, and eventually Andrea got the. Oscars nomination, which upset certain people because, for example, Danielle Deadweiler until didn't get a nomination. I personally believe most of the consternation about this issue is from people like publicists and Flax who are on the payroll to get movies like The Woman King nominations, and they failed because Mary McCormick sent out an email. Mm -hmm. That's how it feels to me. It sucks that Danielle Deadweiler is not among the top five. I would personally say indisputably she is among the best five performances of the year. That said, people acting like anybody is quote-unquote owed an Oscar nomination, that is not true. So I, I felt like there's a little bit of bad faith about that part of the story because Andrea Riseborough is fucking amazing. You would never say she didn't deserve, quote-unquote, deserve an Oscars nomination. But it is funny that Frances Fisher, who is, you know, just famous for playing a white lady in Titanic, is at the heart of this scandal because she did the one thing I consider a li- running afoul, which is in her recommendation that people vote for two Leslie. She said, and you don't need to vote for this person, this person, and this person because their Oscar nominations are assured. Well, if you're telling people to vote for one other person, that means they're inevitably going to kick somebody out. So I think that's like really nasty to be like, this person deserves it. And then these people don't. And then, putting it under the guise of mathematical reasons when it's just you're depriving them of an Oscars nomination. Also, the idea that Viola Davis was a lock already for an Oscar nomination. Like, have you met the Oscars? Yeah, right. There's reasons not to vote for that. Also, I I, I will say about that movie, which I thought was really good, Mm. and Viola's really good in it. I would describe it as a movie star performance in a above-average action movie that felt a little Disney afterwards. Mm. So I don't know that it screamed oscars to me yeah and listen people have compared it to like braveheart and other things and you know if she was a man doing this performance i'm sure she would have gotten nominated to be honest but like those also slipped through the cracks like like a tom hardy and mad max for example you know what i mean that's fair but i will also say that like a man being this book like the movie wouldn't have ended on it's like tender moment either correct yeah you know, and the awards really still go to like where we look at like best director and things, right? Like the awards really still go to like a certain kind of masculine director with this sort of sensibility that's still left over from the like 70s. Yeah, right, right, right. But that's harder means more serious, which usually means more men. Yes. Yes. But a specific kind, you know, like like Cronenberg isn't nominated. 
Right. Well, you can't be too weird. Yes. Yeah, not not too weird. I can't be sitting around wondering what's wrong with you as I watch the movie. We can't vote for that. He did almost slip in with his um, non-weird movie, though, A History of Violence. Yes, right. Which, woof, do I not need to see that again? Yeah, that was dark. That was bleak. Yeah. That's almost as dark as it can go in that kind of prestige filmmaking. Yeah. Um. Listen, I would say about the Andrew Riseborough controversy, for me, there are two things at play. One, yes, like, the Hollywood machine is upset because they put millions into um, campaigning um, films and like for dinners and screenings, et cetera. You know, when like um, all they had to do was get email sent out and like, and Kate Winslet like hosted like a screening too. You know, like this is, this was grassroots, as grassroots as you can sort of get, you know, um, with big stars involved. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, why didn't anyone else think to just like, Email some people, you know? I will say the one argument against that mm-hmm. is sort of like if a bunch of, like, black people were doing this for, like, a Viola or for, like, Danielle, right? Like, would people in the industry see it as sort of, like, a race thing? Interesting. Like, all these black people supporting this black actor, it's like, oh, we're doing it because they're, like, a black actor, you know? Right, right, right. That's interesting. I, I Now I wanted to see it. I want that to happen next year. Yeah, I feel like it will happen. I feel like... If you are a voting acting member of the Academy, your your email next year is going to be like dodging Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi emails. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just chip in ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the nature of the two Leslie campaign, I think people really detected that this is was out of the ordinary. That people weren't just doing this to like this is their way of participating in the Oscars this year. It's like uh-huh. they were moving mountains because of this one performance. This was kind of like a not once in a lifetime thing, but like they felt really behooved to do it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like future campaigns that act in this regard are going to have to suffer in comparison to that. Cause there is a surprise factor about what was happening there. Mm-hmm. Campaign finance reform. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, again, it's Danielle Deadweiler's performance. I hope more people see. I mean, like, I think the deal with that movie is it was marketed poorly. Yeah. Personally. You know, I I, I can't think of anybody who heard that that performance was amazing, which it is. I, I mean, we can't stop talking about how great that performance was. And yet, I don't feel like I'm hearing people say, like, and you have to see that movie still. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like, I feel like the marketing that also goes along with, you know, black films and actresses. And there was a a great report, you know, on black actors um, and, like, directors and everything and just sort of, like, the dearth of um, nominations that they've had. Um, particularly Because it feel, this feels a lot like clemency all over again, you know? Right, right, right. Same director, too. Oh, no. Not a pattern. She just can't get booked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alfre Woodard's moment will come. Yeah. We've done her dirty too long. But this is also a thing where it's, you know, sort of like, um, do women um and do women of color you know sort of like divest from the oscars with their own sort of ceremony and my thing is one i would love it but my caveat is yes we have awards like the bt awards you know we have you know the glad awards you know like there other communities have things that aren't you know specifically just catered to like you know the white industry but Mm-hmm. I would love another awards thing that has a bit of taste, no shade, but you know, like a GLAD award, a BET award, even a NAACP image award, you know, like it, it all feels a little, you know, like there's room for everyone. 
Right, right. And awards, award, the best of awards is choosy. Like, the reason we care about the Oscars is they leave people out. I mean, that's what makes it good, you know? Yeah, uh, and creates this controversy. So, you know, I'm like, sure, I would love, like, a black award show that's, you know, sort of, like, um, elegant. And Britney, it sort of, like, rewards, like, the best of the best, you know? But that also means that, like, some people are going to be left out. Right. Because not everyone's the best. And I think within that, not, I mean, not just for the sake of leaving people out, but illustrates a point of view is what you're saying, you know? Like, yes, here's what we think is awesome. And it, it differs from, you know, this mainstream vision of what success is. Mm-hmm. And we celebrate that too. You look at the GLAAD Awards or something, right? You know, it's like, mainstream films especially it's like just because like there's some gay shit in it yeah right right Mm -hmm. you know it's like you won't look at this category and be like there's no point of view here there's no like are all these the same quality right right like even if you look at like best picture like one thing that i think is great this year is that there's really no overlap subject wise among the best pictures but it also feels like those movies all got nominated because they're just hitting different sectors as opposed to we're evaluating based on quality alone Mm -hmm. like does anybody really think elvis is like a 90 plus on Metacritic. I mean, I personally don't. I think that movie's a mess. I loved Elvis, though. Uh, well, okay, you have a clinical issue. And <laughs> may Lisa Marie rest because I'm getting angry. Uh, I feel like that tends to happen to me with Baz Luhrmann films. Though. I'm always like, I love this one. and But I'm always like, his past movies are, ugh. And I start to reevaluate the past ones. And I'm like, but I love this one. It's bombastic and it's fun. And I'm sure by the next time his next movie comes out, I'll be like, oh, oh, maybe Elvis kind of sucks. Oh, that's interesting. You think things, they get kind of worse in retrospect. That's the opposite of how I feel about Madonna new projects, where I remember music coming out and being like, oh, this is so hokey. What's this cowboy shit? Five years later, I'm like, oh, that was pretty rad. You know, anyway, I don't know why I had to bring up Madonna right there, but. I mean, listen, we need, because you wouldn't be keeping up episode without you bringing up Madonna. <laughs> I'm just being mean. <laughs> Where's that boot camp footage? Oh, my God. I can't. Be- well, first of all, I can't believe we fucking threw that movie away because <laughs> because, you know, imagine watching that movie. That's how I feel. But but man, the prep that Julia Garner went through, I'm sure she is like one large sinewy muscle right now. <laughs> uh, the stories we would have gotten from set, though, if they got out, I think that would have been like a gulag. Yeah. Wow. So we'll never get a Madonna autobiopic no i'm telling we you know ryan murphy is gonna get there and i've expressed my actual cautious optimism about that i think he will do it well um but you know i think that would be good though i called it autobiopic before because i think that the idea of an autobiography as a book is fine you're telling a story i think an autobiopic you directing your own story is a bit all right yeah you know because there's 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 a little bit more final cut going on here than with like an editor or something else that's in a book where you're also a bit more expansive and really can dig into things i'm like i who knows what this madonna story would have been from her eyes right i just don't picture her having the um sure hand of someone like bob fossey doing all that jazz where it's like oh mm-hmm. you picked a fucking zany angle on your own life and it is self-indulgent but it is also one of a kind mm-hmm it's also an indictment of himself. Right, right. In ways. And I do wonder, like, what's going on? What, what, braids, what braids suit <laughs> is happening in Madonna's head right now? Like, how does she remember the 90s? Uh, right. No, again, I, I really think it's, she's way too interested in the people she knew once upon a time. She's Right. Whenever she's like, oh, I knew Tupac. You know? No, the movie <laughs> should be called I Knew Tupac. Wait, <laughs> wait for him to be in this movie. Wait for it. <laughs> Back to Andrea Riseborough. 
star of Madonna's WE. People who don't talk to me about movies normally are coming up to me and saying they love to Leslie. I mean, again, something special is happening with that movie specifically. Um, so honestly, in a way, I think she's a contender for the win because there's such a weird fire beneath that performance now. Um, and Kate Blanchett is now sort of shirking the moment. She gave a speech at the Critics' Choice Awards where she's like, called the whole awards process patriarchal. Like it, it felt like a kind of a buzzkill. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how people are going to respond to that. It sort of feels like Andrea is on the up and up. Obviously, Michelle Yeoh is still in the picture too. Oh, well, to Leslie, thanks for everything. <laughs> and to Leslie Ann Warren, thanks for everything. What are you doing right now? Loved her on Desperate Housewives. And of course, Victor Victoria. Uh, um, now that you bring that up, though, by the way, I was tweeting recently about like how much I miss Desperate Housewives and how much I miss like episodic soap operas. Sure. I just, by the way, saw the first two episodes for the first time. So I'm finally on the Ira track here. Of Desperate Housewives? Yes. What'd you think? You know who I thought was fucking amazing in it? Marsha Cross. She's great. She's the perfect casting for that. Like the slightly like alien look she gives everything. It was like constantly funny. It's like really good. And I love the, I miss that era of just like, there's a long continuing story, but they each have like a different story each week. Very Sex of the City-ish too. Like, yeah. Um, I was just thinking about that a lot because I just started Poker Phase, which I think is amazing too. I haven't started it yet. I need to, I need to. But it's great that it's just, you know, it's, Ryan Johnson, his fucking brain, you know, and the, the genre shit that he loves. It starts out with this big story that um, Natasha Leone is wrapped up in, and then she's on the run, but then solving cases around people that she meets, you know, but it's never like, oh, there's this big conspiracy that's happening where it's going to like unfold in each episode. No, it's just like, that's just the conceit for the series. Oh, it's very like Veronica Mars. Like you get back to the big mystery at the end but even then no there's no big mystery it's just a case of the week series oh i see it's just episodic yeah no he's calling back to like columbo or manix yeah. or one of those shows yeah yeah it's like they have a big origin story but other than that like it's case of the week i gotta get into that which is so much fun and that it also and because it's peacock and it's ryan johnson um and it's elevated that means you get guest stars like um Laurel and um Hong mm. Chow, you know, and Benjamin Bratt and Adrian Brody, you know, like there are Dasha Palaka, like there are big guest stars who will do like the one episode of this TV show. And it feels like an old, you know, like those old Columbo, like the other crime shows when you would see like big like movie stars or something like appearing in like one episode of this crime show. No, and it's it's really fun guest star appearances. Like I feel like the idea of guest star on a drama turned into SVU where it's just oh <laughs> they're they're a, a cross-eyed pedophile and they're out here to get an Emmy. Um but uh uh in in that case it like it really featured them and they got to be, you know, um really pop and have fun and be sinister. Right, yeah. it should be fun. Fr your friends and Law and & Order ruined um, guest stars on TV. Totally, totally. To say nothing of Cynthia Nixon's deserved second Emmy or and margarets Emmy. But yeah. no, I'm, I'm very excited to see this. Also, again, it's just uh, obviously everybody knows this about Ryan Johnson, but just that we have somebody that is so honoring the, an obsession with particular and kind of bygone genres of the past and finding a way to update them. I mean, it's, it's just awesome. It's like it, it, I'm so thankful for that. Yeah. Um, all right, when we're back, we'll be joined by Zosha Rockmore to discuss her latest film, Who Invited Charlie? 
Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with Glad. So they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. <laughs> Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover. The shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah, I broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when... It feels affirming when others, blank, I connect to my community by, I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at, and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Keep It is brought to you by Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. I was there. I remember. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children, like Dance Moms, the infamous Lifetime Network show where the studio owners screamed at children and their moms over several seasons. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Mm, they recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Well, we know that someone created the beast known as Jojo Siwa. <laughs> you think we see the, the, the lab workings that created Jojo Siwa? <laughs> yeah. One pigtail, two pigtails. Uh, and Chemical X. <laughs> Abby's biggest misstep actually wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Well, follow The Big Flop wherever you get your podcasts. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc prince album we never got someone check the vault please (laughs) 
<laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is always the funniest person in the room. You know her from stealing every scene in the Mindy Project, I'm Dying Up Here, and Black Monday. And now you can catch her in the touching pandemic comedy, Who Invited Charlie? Please welcome to Keep It, Zosha Rockmore. Hey. Hi. How are you? I feel like I haven't seen you in a minute. In a minute. I know. I think... I feel like the last time I saw you might have been at the Sorry to Bother You premiere. I'm like, yes, yeah, the premiere. Yeah, I'm like, we used to we used to see each other so much more before I was like a mom, when we would just like go to brunch and just see fun things. I know, but you know, motherhood. Motherhood, it, it robs you of free time. I keep losing <laughs> friends to this. Like, I never thought it would happen to me, honestly. Like, a lot of people, like, like I'm in my <laughs> mid, mid-30s, and now people are doing it. Like, because it didn't happen in my 20s, I just was in denial that it would ever occur. Right, and now they're dropping like flies. Yeah, I'm, I'm all alone over here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it's, all, it's always exciting to see you in something, too, because I always feel like, you know, I know you personally, and I just feel like you are so funny. And I feel like that really just sort of translates to your presence on screen, you know? And I just sort of, like, want to know, like, what is it about um, when you take on, like, a character that just sort of allows you to be, like, just feel like yourself, really, but also different in every role. But it really just sort of takes on this sort of just like sweet, like funny, welcoming quality. Oh my gosh, thank you. You know, that's like the kind of stuff that I'm honestly just, I guess, still learning about myself as a performer. Like when I like read a little review or just the more work I do, I'm starting to um, be able to identify what it is that I specifically bring. I feel like early in your career you're just trying to get in where you fit in um and you know just trying to be booking and so like you're just kind of like doing whatever but like as I kept going I've gotten like offers for things I'm like oh you know I think I'm authentic (laughs) I think that's what it is I think it's the authenticity I'm a Sagittarius uh sun and rising so like I'm just authentic as hell um to a fault probably um but I think that is usually what I try to bring to characters in the role. And I think that that is usually the through line. Even though every character is different, I think that authenticity is what shines through. In uh, this movie, Who Invited Charlie, you're with a bunch of people who, every time I see them, I one, they're so funny. And two, they're like you. I feel like you could just put them in any movie. And I'm like, oh, thank God they're there. They like I immediately identify with them. They bring it. Super watchable and super grounded. All of these people really got it. It's Adam Pally, it's Reed Scott. How did you feel working with this ensemble of people? Oh my gosh, I was, I was so excited. Um, honestly, all of my scenes were just with Pally. So I'm just like, I'm happy to be in the movie with those other people, but I only got to work with him. And I was so excited about that because he's so good. He's so funny. I've learned so much from him when I was on the Mindy Project with him, just about like how to not be afraid to like take up space and like do your thing and um yeah he's a, a master improviser um and a cool friend so i was just really happy to be there and just get to like act with him it was so easy mm-hmm. that is funny because i for i sort of like forgotten that he was on the mini project for a bit and then mm-hmm. um it also reminds me of like i met you like when you were doing the mini project and 
What do you think has been um, your takeaway from the show now as part of your career? Just because it's so interesting that everybody's been talking about it again now since it dropped on Netflix. Um, and then when you were doing it before, but it was like on Fox. So like people were watching it uh, before it went over the Hulu. Um, so like, what has been your takeaway of like that character? Like have people had like res- weird responses to it now that they've been able to revisit it? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I've learned that it's like a lot of people's comfort show, mm. like younger people. Um, I still feel like it was yesterday, but I like, I know somebody who's like 25 currently. And she's like, I grew up on that show. It's <laughs> my comfort show. I was like, grew up on, that was yesterday. <laughs> but like, so like that for one, the people are like watching all the episodes and loving it. So like people feel like I'm a part of their family or just, Honestly, that is like the number one thing that people recognize me from, I'd say, is the Mindy Project. When people come up to me and they're like, I love your work. They're usually talking about that. So that's really cool. And I learned so much. I mean, I learned everything over there. I've learned other stuff since, but like, I learned what all the positions are, like in the crew um, on set, like what, what the different, like what a line producer is versus like a, like a creative producer and writing producer. I learned that you can write your own show and be in it. Like I just, you know, Mindy herself was such an expander, just seeing what she was doing. Everybody on there was a writer. I I like learned that as a funny person, people usually want to hear what you have to say. So there's like a nice little pipeline between being a funny person and a writer. That was something I learned there. I learned so much. Yeah. And then also just how to, again, take up space as a comedian or just as like I, I looked at like Ike and Pally and Mindy and stuff and they just were not afraid to improv which is like not always the easiest thing to do when you're like showing up on set you know mm-hmm. you just kind of want to be like I'll just say my line but like since we were so comfortable there and there was this trust and everybody was so amazing like folks would just go off on these riffs and rants and they would be funny and they would like end up in the show and so like Every self-tape I do now, every audition, I'm always improvising. Like, if I'm not, that's deep. Like, I mean, unless I'm, you know, um, reading for Aaron Sorkin or something, you know. <laughs> I think he could use the improv more than anybody. You should keep doing it in case he ever comes calling. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, some people, you'd be like, let me chill out. But, like, when it comes to other things, especially on an audition tape, because it'd be like, this is my own personal one-woman show. I do what I want. Like, I you know, on the day, it might be different. But, yeah, I learned countless amounts of things in my years on Mindy. It was like grad school to me. I always look at it like that. One of my favorite questions is just, so why are you funny? Do you do you feel you've been funny your entire life? Or do you feel like some, you know, something happened, you realize, oh, there's there's some value to being funny and then you developed it? Or were you always funny? I always remember being funny, like just from being little. But yeah, I think I'm truthful. So I think that's what makes well, sometimes people funny. But yeah, I've always been like, as my family would say, stupid or a fool, like, since I've been little, I'm like, you're dumb, shut up, like, or goofy. Yeah, and I always definitely, I love to get a response out of people, so I think that plays into it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- one of my also favorite um, interactions with you, too, was um, we're, we, we were at this, RIP, this Mexican restaurant. I don't even remember the name of it. Carmen's or so- something on the east side. Um, oh yeah. Yes, but I remember we were there, and you had introduced me to Donald Glover that night because uh, he happened oh to be God, there. Yes, <laughs> and then you were in Atlanta as well. Uh, you know, so like, what was doing your comedy like um, in 
Atlanta or even like a Black Monday where, you know, like you're getting to act, you know, opposite, you know, like you have Donald here or you got Regina, you know, Don Cheadle there, you know, like this is like a different kind of comedy that, you know, like with Black folks doing like a newer thing than yeah. opposed to, you know, like um, network sitcom. Right. Well, Atlanta was so fun and cool. We were literally in Paris. Like, honestly, on Atlanta, <laughs> I didn't even like, the stuff I had to say was definitely funny, but that episode was so nuts. All I had to do was just to truthfully respond to like what was happening. Because that episode was just like, if that episode was so Atlanta to me. Like it was the most atlanta is Atlanta episode of like, <laughs> and Donald directed it so like he just had such a clear view of what he wanted and yeah we would I literally just had to respond because everything was fucking crazy so I was just like responding truthfully but then yeah Black Monday was so fun and cool because like the people who the showrunners and the producers that show they're comedy people they're like the happy endings people so like at the end of the day it's kind of like the Black Monday's not a network show but like their who like their comedy like brains are kind of like mm-hmm. similar to the comedy that I was used to. You know, like they want you to show up, they want you to have fun, they want you to bring your own thing to it. Um, so then I had to like, you know, take deep breaths about working with Don Cheeto because he's a literally a legend and one of my favorite actors and iconic Sagittarius. Um, <laughs> but he he's another masterful improviser and same with Regina. Like, so it was kind of like all the stuff I had done on Mindy was kind of showing up there, but just with a different kind of dialogue, Mm -hmm. you know, like longer chunks, more FBI, uh, a little more wordy, but it was literally like the same vibe. Everyone having fun, people trying things. It was like Paul Shears, like all these comedy people, you know, like everybody there is basically like from UCB and stuff. So it was pretty, it was like more similar than I thought it would be, I guess. Does working all the time change your appetite for what you watch in your spare time? Like, do you find you watch things you would you would maybe never be in? Mm-hmm. Or like what actually occupies this part of your brain that like just, just consuming this stuff anyway? Oh my God, I love that you think I'm working all the time. I got hung up there. I was like, oh, I'm never working. <laughs> it sure fucking looks like it i'm looking down your credits i'm like this woman has not taken a break in seven years oh my god i'm all i'm i'm, I'm always on the break that's so funny i love that it looks i need to i'll own that yes i'm but i'm always working um <laughs> like kind of i mean not really i feel like i watch every i usually watch everything that everyone watches because i love to be a part of the conversation mm-hmm. so like i'm definitely gonna watch anything that people are like tweeting about um unless it's just like a hard no for me um definitely find that i watch way more tv than movies like i feel like i'm such a gen z i'm not <laughs> I'm so gen z. like i'm like Ugh, a movie like i'm like Ugh, i'd rather watch 500 hours of a television show but yeah no i just I just try to stay in the convos. I just like watch what everyone else watches. Usually, just like it might be, I don't know, be like in the Twitter conversation. <laughs> Has motherhood changed like some of like what you watched though? Like, what shows do you watch? You're like, guess I'm watching this for my kid. Oh, child. Her, her old shows. Oh, oh my God. She watches the, no offense, she watches these crazy shows. She loves like, there's a show called Masha in the Bear. It's like a Russian cartoon. Like on Netflix, there's like eight seasons of it. She's obsessed. It's like a little bad Russian girl who lives with a bear in the woods and she's just bad and always getting into trouble. And the bear is always like, oh, she's like always doing all this stuff. It's like my daughter loves that. 
she's starting to like more like because now that she's five she's five and a half she's like Mm -hmm. starting to enjoy like legit disney movies and stuff because when they're like in that preschool age they like these like beard like like coco melon like these shows that are seeing like the wheels on the bus and it's like slow weird animation but now she's like you know she loves moana she loves there's this little short film on disney plus called bow it's so cute it's about like a mother oh yeah she's obsessed with bow right now she's like i did and i don't like it because it's seven minutes long and when i turn the tv on (laughs) i'm gonna do stuff so when it's over i have to come back and do i'm like i don't like these disney plus shorts because they're too short i use the tv so i can do my thing so yeah, we've been fighting about that this morning. She's like, I, I like sharks. I'm like, you don't even like trolling me. But yeah, she like loves that. She's in her Disney Plus era right now, for sure. You've actually done like most genres already. Is there something you haven't done yet that you're waiting to do? I've done like TV, film, drama, uh, comedy. Luckily. Have we done horror? Horror? No, I haven't. Oh my, and I love horror movies. But like, I haven't. Is that is that something that you find that even like when you talk about things you get offered and stuff like have people reach out to you for those and you just it hasn't been the right project or like do you feel like people see you for like comedy things mostly? I haven't been offered any horror films. Um yeah, because I would be all over that. I mean, especially if it's like tight, you know. Mm -hmm. But I have auditioned for a lot of them um and not gotten them. But been like, man, I could be in that. But yeah, I did audition for Megan. Oh, you wow. did? For the lead role. I was like, she's going to be black. They love to, no shade, but they love to play. Like, somebody's going to be black. You know, they- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's their favorite game. God bless. Because I was like, look, if I would have been the black, now everybody's. You know, now the black movie. Megan Black, the. It changes so much if the Allison Williams character isn't just this right woman. Because if you were her, then they <laughs> who would they? <laughs> it changes so much. I'm imagining Megan being like a black doll now, which right. would I don't hate the idea. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate it. Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> that's no, that's uh that's Megan three in the hood. <laughs> right. Oh my god, same same choreography though, because I was like, that was my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of stuff like that that I auditioned for, and I'm like, no, y'all know that wasn't gonna be that. What were y'all doing? Just collecting tapes? <laughs> but I auditioned auditioned for White Lotus. I had just watched that for White Lotus to be I don't know none of the characters. I'm like, why well, I'm not knowing characters' name to be the other couple who was with Aubrey Plaza oh. to be the mm. wife. Megan Fahey, mm. yes. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, who was so good. Um, loved her. And I was like, why? What? I mean, hey, maybe in some alternate universe, but <laughs> but she was great in that, and I loved that. I loved White Lotus so much, season two. But yeah, I just be looking at the stuff I audition for sometimes when it come out, and I'd be like. Okay. <laughs> 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 and obviously, this is no shame because, like I said, I thought she was so good in it and so pretty and bond. Probably my favorite part of the show. Yeah, no, I mean, Megan Faye is like really great. And I just feel, I feel like uh, that is an interesting thing, too, just the idea of um, when everyone's invited to audition for things, and then there's the idea of is this really just the casting director, like, casting a wide net so they could say we cast a wide net? Or are they actually going to be like, well, let me put somebody up in this? Because, you know, I've been on the other side, too, of, like, 
castings for like shows and stuff and you hear them talking about it and i'm like you you're not casting but like because in the room they've been like this is a meg ryan type you know mm-hmm. so why right, right, are you right. looking at uh alfrey woodard right i'm dead and it has to make sense for the story because <laughs> when i once i watched uh season two i was like that wouldn't have made sense that man's not married to a, a, to a me black woman like you know like i'm like the the world that they're in, what they're they, what they were talking about, the way that they said that you know that they were like, oh, there are like token white presenting ethnic friend couple, like that none of that would work, like with the actual story that was on the page. So sometimes I'm like, maybe they're just being pretty and they just want to give everyone a chance, mm-hmm. take it as a positive way. Well, that's fascinating. I I really have never considered that. Like, oh, you would go in for like a giant role and then you know so, something else is going on or like this isn't uh, feasible or whatever. Right. I know more on that. I'm like, I can talk all day about what I want to shoot for. <laughs> By the way, an underrated ensemble you're a part of is the show I'm Dying Up Here, including because Melissa Leo is one of the fascinating actors who've ever lived. She came up already this episode because we we're talking about uh, strange Oscar campaigns. What was it like working on that show, which, by the way, was chock a block with guest stars? Right. Oh my God. It was so fun. Actually, was working on that right after I had my baby. She wasn't even one yet. It was like after I had a baby, I just started working. It was so bomb. Like, and I think this was Mindy Project. It ended too, so I was like freed up to do a lot of stuff. But yeah, I had so much fun on that because it was like about comedians, but it was a drama. Like there's like hour long drama show and in the 70s and the ensemble was, everyone was so cool. I loved working on that, honestly. I loved getting to play a stand-up comedian because it's always been like a secret dream of mine. So getting to like, you know, have a fake set and like perform it in the 70s hair was bomb on that show like yeah i just loved everything about it and and the whole cast was so awesome what was it like even performing like a guess you would call it like a fake stand-up set because i i feel like the thing whenever you watch uh, stand-up things um, and not I'm dying up here which I thought was great but like there's so many things where you watch it like you see the person doing stand-up and you're watching it and you're like well that's not actually funny so right. you know the audience <laughs> laughing at it it's like what are we doing here uh, but I what's know. it like like shooting a <laughs> fake stand-up set and then the reactions to it and like were you working with like the comedy or stuff with um the creators, but then I also feel like it's 70s, it's period, so it's not like, you know, like, right. that's more like Miss Maisel, you know, that opposed right. to, like, you doing, like, a current show where you're a stand-up. Right. No, I thought, I mean, honestly, on the show, I think I had one moment, it was, like, my introductory episode of me where I got to do, like, my bit, and mm-hmm. then otherwise, it was, we were, she was doing the same act, obviously, like, as a comedian does, like, her same material, but I thought it was so funny. It was actually the audition material, too. I had to, like, do the the set like that was the audition and I was like this is so funny like for the 70s so I was like she's a cutting edge comedian for back then like yeah I thought it was great but that show was really collaborative in that way like they were very open to listening to what all the actors had to say especially because we had like Santino was there like who's an actual stand-up so like he would help and like punch things up like everyone was allowed to like contribute in a way but honestly, I don't think I had to like even change anything in mind. It was it was good as as it was. I was able to just perform it. It was so fun though. I was like nervous though, like I was actually doing stand up because like all the extras and like I was like I fucked the bum today. Was <laughs> 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 but 
But it was so fun. I loved it. It was like all my stand-up dreams come true through her, through Dawn. And Good Lord was it more convincing than still the definitive stand-up movie, which is Punchline with Tom Hanks and Sally Field. I, I just, as an anthropological experiment, watch this movie and you will simply not believe that it exists. I've, I've never even seen that. I'm like, only, I'm just thinking of like fake stand-up like, or like, yeah, written on TV or being a, obviously, chase comedy concert from, um, and just like that. Like, I think that's the last one I've seen of like fake stand-up on TV. Right, yeah. I guess like the the opening of certain Seinfeld episodes, etc. You know. Oh yeah. Well, but obviously that's gonna be. He's probably writing those. So right, yeah, right, right. You know, I'll say one of my favorite fake stand up scenes is, and it's so stupid. Um, <laughs> it is still the uh, women be shopping in Nutty <laughs> Professor. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. <laughs> That disaster is spooky. Oh my God, I still have PTSD from the whole scene. <laughs> like an, an evil roast comic. Yes, like that was really just like that era too, where like the like you d- did not want to like go up into stand-up comedy because if they see you, it was like it was like a shark with blood in the water. It's like that right. era of just like I'm gonna roast people in the room was. I'm glad I did not live through that era of stand-up comedy. Same. I would not have made it. It's like, oh man, look at him. He's like, I don't have to go to the bathroom. I'm like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> and it's, and then it was really sad. Jada was humiliated. I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> it's like stressful. <laughs> uh, well, Zosha, it is so good to see you. Yes, you too. What a blast. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Lewis, I kind of feel like we are part of the um, Ava Max fan club. Like, we have official pins. Oh, yeah. 
on my sash, which I wear. Yeah, with your other artist pins next to the Carpenters and Tori Amos and Amy Mann. Yes. Wow. There's nothing left to know about me, actually. You've said all of it. <laughs> Uh, but Ava Max finally released her long-awaited album, Diamonds and Dance Floors. And I say long-awaited because this was supposed to come out like last year. And then it got hella delayed. Like every album. I don't think a single album has come out on time since roughly The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. <laughs> Which is shocking. <laughs> yes. And the, by the way, then that was the last one she put out. So that didn't even go out. <laughs> So what do we think of the album? Now, a lot of people will say that Ava Max feels like an AI-generated pop star, that she's the neon outline of a pop star and not, you know, a person, (laughs) and that her name, you know, looks like a captcha, and that there's not much identity going on there. Don't need identity when you've got the bops, girls. One at a time, each one of these, me in the car, I mean, truly I should be pulled over because it's... Such a good time. <laughs> the new song, Ghost, on this album. Yes. Uh, produced by Emily K. Hitting for me. Who's like reigning over music. We were just talking about Emily K with an upcoming guest that we'll be able to pimp soon. But I fucking love this album. I love, I love the last one, too. Born to the Night on that album was fabulous. Yeah. Uh, I really think that, like, she's an artist who... I don't know. You know, I think that... Um, She's really exciting. Obviously, the gays go up for her. I'm just sort of like, what's that tipping point moment for her where, you know, people realize that, like, this is massive pop music that's that's fun. You know, I think the entire album, truly, it's a no-skip album for me. I feel the same way. I think that's her whole kind of mantra. You know, just, like, put out, like, fun music and that's it. You're not getting a moment. Like, even Carly Rae Jepsen from time to time has a ballad or something. You're not getting that from uh, Ava Max, at least this time around. She did have one soupy song or two the last time. Mm-hmm. But no, this time it's pure. I mean, maybe you're the problem. Get me on an elliptical right now. And I'm just also wondering, like, what the thing is about her that's not connecting with people? Because I have played Baby, You're the Problem for a straight friend of mine, the only straight friend I have. Uh, <laughs> and he loved, he was like, who the hell is this? Right. And then, like, puts it on at, at parties all the time. And I was like, where was the, like, connecting tissue that didn't involve, you know, like, um, me proselytizing um, Ava Max to people? You know, I was like, where was the marketing or promotion that would get that song to him? first right and just like was carly Rae jepsen straight men in particular do like serious like good bubblegum pop music you know it's not something that you have to like trick them into liking or whatever you know it's like a, a pure adrenaline jolt why wouldn't they like it we learned that in high school when uh straight people were talking about toxic more than gays because we were closeted right <laughs> so right. uh they were the ones openly talking about toxic being like this is so fucking good i think i love a britney spears song i'm still getting over the awkward convergence of gays and straights over since you've been gone like that too we all agree on this huh all right fine you're allowed to stay. But I also think it's just because, like, Kelly Clarkson and Brittany, like, in those respects, had identities in culture. Right. And I sort of don't know what Ava Max's identity is. No. And I don't think we've scratched the surface because who knows if there's a surface there. It feels like a hologram. <laughs> but 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Because interestingly enough, she just like hosted something at uh, Rocco's, which is a bar in West Hollywood that Lance Bass owns, just in the middle of the day on Saturday, like during brunch. Even that sentence. Right. By the way. <laughs> but it's like, so that's where you are, huh? Yeah. She feels right now in that kind of Kim Petras space of everybody I know, a.k.a. gay people, know you have songs out but you are mysteriously available and I can watch you perform at that ATM. So I don't know what's happening right now. Uh, except Kim Petras has now been elevated thanks to Sam Smith and also Megan Trainer. but we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of feel like that's the thing, you know, when, when, I, was t- when I was describing that story earlier uh, in the episode about, you know, the uh, invention of her song, right? Uh, there's also that thing that she used to tell people about how her Remember her asymmetric hair bob thing? Yeah. Like, that was weird. Was that was that supposed to be, like, a connecting tissue to people to um, get them to chat about you? Yeah. Remember the shape of my hair? Now speak about me. Yeah, she's always seemed like a Sims avatar. Yeah. Somebody in the, the Live and Large expansion pack who shows up for your big party, along with the fortune teller or whoever else is in that game. And I think maybe that's sort of like the problem. And maybe we're more attuned to it because having lived in LA you know like when you're just around sort of like the music industry or people um you know they'll be performing you know like at the bars we go to uh to sort of get their name out there etc you know there is this thing of just you know we're making this pop music and it's loud and it's dancing it's for the gays etc and then it's just like so what else is going on you know Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because it's it's a kind of music that doesn't demand you know everything about their identity. You know, it's not confessional, really. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it feels like, well, she's not super obligated to like mm-hmm. make that much of an impact on the personal front. But at the same time... Kylie does, though. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a sweetness to Kylie, and I feel like there's a sweetness to Carly Rae Jepsen that people mm. remember. That, yeah. to me, that's, like, there's, that's just like a slight element of his soul there. Because the argument against Kylie has always been like, you know, non-confession, right? Right, right. Yeah, I don't really know anything about her. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, secrecy on the dance floor. There's <laughs> actually Kylie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the one thing we know about her is she is always mad at a man who is um, not dancing. <laughs> <laughs> That is a consistent theme, yes. It's like every other – it's always like, get out of my way or, you know, like um, – did you see me over here dancing? It's like, that is what her vibe generally is. I truly remember the reviews that came out after X, which I think is a wonderful album. Um, and an underrated Kylie album, too, I would say. Um, has has stood the test of time, I would say, yeah. Yeah, there were critiques just because it was after her cancer recovery, you know? And once it was in remission, and I think she has like one song that's sort of about it. Um, which is cosmic, which right. is a fucking gorgeous song. Yeah, but and that's still in a kind of pop. It's it, it doesn't sound like, for example, Tracy Chapman or something. There's not a, there's not like a seriousness to it. But you like listen to the lyrics, and if you know that about her, you know, like then it will like tug at your like uh, heartstrings. And like I've cried listening to it when it first came out. Other than that, like there's no confession though. You know, uh, as opposed to when she's always compared to Madonna. You know, like Madonna would sometimes give us too much information. <laughs> 
Oh, every day I wake up. Not, I have to throw the phone down. I don't want to see that. Yeah. And now, now it's more because she has a phone and their social media. I mean, we probably knew a little bit less about Madonna because she had to what? Call she had to call up page six in like '97 <laughs> or something. Like, oh no, she had fucking Liz Smith on the dial. Yeah, right. Well, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> and Liz is like, I'm I'm not in the day. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like I would say, like we all love Kylie Minogue, but I don't think you know, for instance, like the rest of my straight family or whatever knows anything really about Kylie Minogue other than like that song of hers from 20 years ago. So Mm -hmm. like gays can tap into that a little bit. They discovered her again during the pandemic with um, magic. Right. Which I, which I feel that to me sounds like cruise ship music. I'm surprised people like that song that much. Well, you know, I don't fucking like dancing. (laughs) Uh, Well, that wasn't great either. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're the only one who's listened to that album all the way through (laughs) Oh, come on, Sincerely Yours was a banger Shelby 68, love that song Uh, But um, speaking of someone who I feel like we know Maybe way too much about Is Sam Smith Yes uh, Who, as we said, you know, elevated um, A similar artist to sort of Ava Max Kim Petras With Unholy Uh, And that's, but I also feel like that's how Things like that happen in the industry you know, Kim being featured on Unholy and then it's number one and it's on the charts for so long. Now, people are starting to know who Kim Petras is. Right. But Sam, what's so interesting about Sam Smith is we're not that far removed from the era where Sam was doing a lot of really weird interviews and saying a lot of, like, random things just about coming out, um, not liking Michael Jackson and other random things. And people were just sort of like, who are you? It was like a combination of they were seemingly very honest, um, also a little half-baked. You felt like you weren't quite getting a, a fully thought-out quote from Sam Smith anyway. Yes. So that is is still in people's recent memory. And now you have Gloria, the new album, which I would say for me is just kind of there. Sure. Well, well, I will say this about Sam Smith. I think something that's strange about the Sam Smith story is the music is happening what you would intuitively think. Like, mm-hmm. you're getting the dancey stuff now, and you got the really awards-grabby dramatic stuff before. Mm-hmm. It's like, who who's ever done it in that order before? You know, usually you just do the, the poppy radio stuff, and then that, you know, accelerates you into being able to get the, you know, the Celine-style Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff that really gets a lot of Grammys and, and an Oscar in this case. but And what I would also say is that um, the dancey stuff sort of like, unfortunately, uh, is compared to their best dance stuff, which they did with Disclosure. Yes. Because none of this is meeting like, you know, Latch. Correct. Uh, wait, the song uh, Sam did with Normani. That's the best Sam Smith song. Yeah. Mm, that too. Mm-hmm. Mm, I fucking love that song too. I wish Normani had like played in that field a bit more. That meditative disco space. I love that. That's so specific. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> she's just lost in a cornfield, probably wished there for, <laughs> by the kid from Twilight Zone. Uh, <laughs> never to return. All right. When we're back, keep it.
And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. But first of all, I realized we did not actually even fulfill what I said in the intro. Which was? Ava Max stands. What are they called? Because there was this weird interview with her on the radio where she was like saying, some of my fans are calling themselves maxi pads. And I'm like, I don't think that's real. I think that's like Selena Gomez stands, like just making fun of Ava Max stands. Right. Um, Also, just because you heard it one time doesn't mean it should be repeated out loud. So <laughs> definitely not Maxi Pads. I am absolutely fine with Maxinistas. 100% yes. I am fine with that. I need her to hear Maxinistas though and like, you know, like really, really tap into it. Okay. She needs to maxinize the Maxinistas. Okay. Like we tried so hard to get Little Mix to acknowledge her fans as mixologists. Which is cute. Yeah. It didn't work. But I guess, you know what? A lot of them were underage. So... Shouldn't be drinking. Don't drink, right. kids. <laughs> We're your dare officers now. <laughs> to our under 21 listeners. <laughs> Stay in school. Uh, Lewis, what's your keep it? I think my keep it is to the fact that we were due for a new body swap comedy. Just, I feel like the time is now. It's been a few years. The definitive ones are now like 20 years old. You know, 17 again didn't really stick. Mm-hmm. But now the one we're getting is a body swap comedy, and it involves Julia Roberts and Jennifer Aniston. Now, I am not seeing the cinematic value in watching those two people switch bodies, much as I mm. love them both. And if we're going to put Julia Roberts in a new movie, I'm sorry, there is one mode in which I appreciate Julia Roberts most, And I hope you will pardon my French. As you know, I'm not a profane person. But Julia (laughs) Roberts needs to be playing a fucking cunt. Because she is (laughs) deliciously cunty in her best movies as of the past 15 years, including August Osage County. Mm -hmm. I want her to be intimidating, mean, and absolutely obliterating people with one-liners. Like Erin Brockovich, that should have been just the beginning of that segment of her career. Mm -hmm. My best friend's wedding. I I will honestly say... That is the problem with um, Ticket to Paradise. She's not enough of a bitch. Right, It's sort of like, he's the asshole, and they sort of hate each other, but I also feel like that movie never really commits to the idea that these two hate each other. Right. There was so much potential there for them to be, like, really vicious with one another, but the movie was very neither here nor there. Like, I don't remember almost a thing about it. Yeah, but it was successful, and I feel like the, this whole idea now that we're going to be getting, because I've seen this from like the Deadline articles for the Body Swap comedy, is that studios are looking for two-handers now. Yes, which, okay, I respect that. They're looking for, like, two stars. I love that era of cinema. Like, we just brought up Punchline, right? Like, get, give us two stars, put them in a movie together. That can be really fun. But, yeah, a Body Swap, unless it's a mom and a daughter— like Lindsay Lohan, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, I, iconic remake of Freaky Friday. Um, yes. You need something that's going to be, like, a little different. And I guess, like, Julia Roberts could play a bitch in this. Jennifer Aniston could be, like, the sweet, like, the good girl. Yeah. As she was in <laughs> The Good Girl. Oh, yeah, I remember. Mike White. Um, but there's really not that much of a difference between, like, there's just two white women. Right. Which, that's my own screenplay in the drawer. Two white women. So you can't have that. So, stand back. Easy easy sequel potential for you in those movies, by the way. It's three white women. Yes, four right. Four white women. Four, uh, white women at, four white women at a funeral. 
<laughs> well, that sounds like a great time. Um, but uh, I am looking forward to like a, a Jennifer Aniston cinematic renaissance. I think she has fun when she does a movie, even when she was in that like uh, Adam Sandler murder mystery boat thing. I thought she was okay. fun in that. I I love a murder mystery, and I saw that they're making murder mystery too. And now I'm like, do I need to watch murder mystery? One, would I enjoy it? I think it has its moments. I mean, it, like, she is so winning. I mean, mm-hmm. also, just that kind of star where you know exactly what you're going to get. Even if she was in, like, a hard drama, there's something about Jennifer Aniston that's so dependable. She's so, like, mm-hmm. in her own skin, just that thing that it, it, it's a pleasure. I, 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 I was never a friend, Stan, so I can never kind of claim her as somebody I'm you know, like a, a number one fan of, but I, I do like, like the fact that she w- was almost a Saturday Night Live cast member and turned it down for friends. Like that kind of tells you all you need to know. You know, she's mm. game for whatever whiz bang. I love that. Um, honestly, um, I loved her in We're the Millers too. I thought she was fucking great. Um, that movie deserves more. I'm always going to mention how much I found that movie hysterical. Um, one thing I do find funny about this though is you think of fr- Friends era, right? As huge and popular as that era was, and she was like one of the highest fucking paid people on TV, right? Right. You know, in the 90s, Julia Roberts would never do a movie with Jennifer Aniston. Oh, absolutely not. A TV no. star? Please. No, she was she would gag. She would just yeah. she would simply spit. Um, no, it does remind me of which there's the resu- I think there was a resentment in the 90s to how popular TV stars were getting. Do you remember when Juliana Margulies was on our show and she was talking mm-hmm. about how she did a movie with Glenn Close, mm-hmm. Paradise Road, and Kate Blanchett's in that movie, and everybody recognized her when they were filming and not Glenn Close. Yeah. I mean, something <laughs> is wicked about that. Something's wicked. Um, but Jennifer Aniston is also one of those interesting people in that in her marriage to Brad Pitt, she then was elevated to the A-list circle without necessarily being A-list for roles. I right. see, like, people would make drags about her, like, still being, like, a TV actress when she would do movies. But, like, she, for all intents and purposes, became A-list when she was with Brad Pitt. It happens sometimes. Again, I, I, I unfortunately have already used my allotted Madonna reference this episode, but when she married Sean Penn, that is the moment when, like, the superstardom thing occurred. Like, she had a number one hit before that, but there's something about, like, a marriage that cements, namely, a female star in people's minds. I think that's even true of Angelina Jolie, who had, you know, the Tomb Raider movies before she was with Brad Pitt and had an Oscar, Oscar or Darwin, whatever. Oscar. But then yeah. this is what like took her to the place of unavoidable Liz Taylor type star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that before. Like the tabloids really push like people. I mean, I don't think there's any, as, as messy as the whole Dunkin' Donuts pandemic strolls with Ben Affleck era of Ana de Armas' life was. I don't think she's nominated for Blonde and we're even talking about it that much if that relationship hadn't happened. Right. No, I think that's true. Because now people know who she is. Right. She was obviously in Knives Out, and she was great in the uh, James Bond movie. But no, the Ben Affleck moment now cements her as somebody you just have to think about anyway. It has nothing to do necessarily with what movie she's in. So that adds a certain gravitas to her as a person, almost unfortunately, I would say. She was Selena Kyle working for Christopher Walken in Knives Out, okay, with her (laughs) little sweaters and, you know, being meek and... The Ben Affleck relationship is what shoved her out of the window and let the cat start licking her face. <laughs> what kind of 
kind of poem was that? Oh my god! <laughs> I was using Batman Returns as an analogy. Yes, yes, no, I, I was, I was envisioning it. Yes, I heard you. Ira, what's your keep it? My keep it goes to the conversation surrounding Sam Smith and their body. Oh, and the outfits. Yes. Yes. So in the Not Here to Make Friends video, Sam Smith is wearing this corseted outfit. Um, and, of course, there's been a lot of hate from the conservatives and the right, you know, like, who are, like, homophobic, fatphobic. Um, we're not talking about that shit because they're obviously wrong. Like, they're obviously right, who cares? evil, disgusting people. Like, they're not even part of the conversation. Right. Um, I'm talking about the defense of Sam Smith, which has now mounted into, well, when Harry Styles wears all these things, you know, everyone's gagging for it. Um, or this muscle gay could be wearing this corset and you'd all love it. But Sam Smith doesn't get that same fervor because they have a fat body. And my argument to that is, one, shut up. Because one, stop comparing every queer person and what they dress like and what they wear and what their body looks like to fucking Harry Styles. I think it's lazy. I'm tired of Harry Styles being in the conversation. And also, we drag Harry Styles all the time. Right. He's dragged for what he wears all the time, like up and down the timeline. There was a thread of someone with um, Sam compared to this other model who was wearing this black corset uh, at a Mugler show. People were dragging that model online too like it's it's being obtuse and ignoring recent history and it also ignores the fact that all the images that you show in comparison with what sam smith is wearing in the video sam smith is wearing pasties opera gloves this Gloria swanson turban okay it's it's it looks a mess even the skinny muscly dancers behind sam smith look a mess uh-huh everyone looks a mess in the video. It's giving take off one thing before you leave the house. Yes. Yes. Okay. Listen to the Nazi Coco Chanel. Okay. <laughs> yes. And I think that. Listen to the Nazi. Listen. I only love two. Her and Ava. <laughs> That's right. Sonia Henny, figure skater. She had it going on too. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the point. Sometimes you can just call a bad outfit a bad outfit. You know? And mm. there's some people online who like to jump in with their, oh, I love a messy queer punk look. I'm like, is that what this is? <laughs> or right. are you just being contrarian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that intentional there or is it just, yeah, a little uh, slipshod? And if you do you think you're messy queer or do you just shop at Big Bud Press? Also, by the way, are we done with the word messy yet? Oof, kill me. It doesn't mean anything. It just means what, like something isn't utterly pristine at all times. I hate people referring to themselves as messy gays. What does that mean? You tweet too much? <laughs> You're not, which, by the way, is also intentional, too. Like, you, you're obsessed with people talking about you or inserting yourself in a conversation. It's not messy. It's intentional. So, stop. Gays who tweet too damn much. And let me tell you something. And, like, I reel myself back. And sometimes I have ADD. And that's why I tweet so much sometimes. And I usually do it <laughs> oh, when I didn't I'm know. bored. Okay. I usually do it when I'm bored. <laughs> you haven't worked with me for five plus years and not known that. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'll say about a person who tweets so much is that. The one time it really annoys me, and this feels like an, uh, another keep it. Sure. Is when someone tweets something that's so funny, right? And you actually want to find the tweet again. When you go to like their their tweets to their timeline to try to find it, 
they always end up being a person who tweets too much. So you're scrolling through like, oh yeah, you're scrolling through like 500 tweets and retweets and everything before you get to the one tweet that was from like yesterday. Right. I mean, here's what I'll say just about Twitter in general, and I'm sorry to do this like years into this podcast, this like super elementary conversation. When you tweet, you are saying it's my turn. So when you're tweeting, you're 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 asking attention. You're, there's a whole bunch of people talking, and it's your turn again. Can you just make it good and not just lowercase babbling? Can it or talking about yourself in a way that's adding nothing to a quote unquote conversation? Like it, it's a, like a lunch table. Speak up when you have something to contribute. Mm. You know, we played Survivor once at our lunch table. In me high too. I won. Can you believe it? I didn't think I had it in me. I think I got second place or I won. I cannot remember the end result. I do remember that we played it every day and the first few days were dark. Because <laughs> the people we voted out, I was, I was like, maybe this is bullying. No, Ira, I was about to say the same fucking thing. I literally remember who got like third to last place, second to last place, first to last place and they just weren't as close with the rest of us. It is bullying. It was organized bullying. Or you were mad at someone at that certain point. So it was like, we're all voting for this person. And then I also remember what always happens invariably with these sort of things. It's like, once we got to the end, like, everyone was kind of sick of playing. Right. And also, there's no point at the end. Like, oh, you won this thing where we're all just sitting here? Yeah. No, you won it. Bu- you won it bullying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your crown of thorns, asshole. <laughs> By the way, when I try and think about how, like, gay is now, like, and everyone thinks that, like, they're a real housewife and et cetera, I was like, when we were younger, everyone thought that they were playing a reality competition show. Right. Which is the way it should have been. We've, you know, strayed from God. Yeah. We should be snuffing people's torches out, not throwing drinks in their faces. Oh, God. Your lips to God's ears. I miss it so much. Not that we have lost Survivor in any way, shape, or form. but I know. But, you know, I sometimes wish that, like, Ultimate Girls Trip, that's what the traitors kind of is, I guess. But I kind of wish Ultimate Girls Trip was um, Survivor. I want the housewives voting each other out. Ugh, I mean, that's coming soon. I think you've wished it into existence. I think some of these franchises should morph into that. Yeah. All right, well, that's our show this week. Andrea Riseborough, we're with you. I hope you're feeling seen. <laughs> Andrea Riseborough, I'll dap you if I pass you on the street, <laughs> but that, that's about it. <laughs> uh, thank you to Zosha Rockmore for joining us, and uh, we will see you next week. It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, keep it as filmed in front of a live studio audience.
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy.